0: BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.
1: Chapter 5 of The Last Plainsman by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti. The Last of the Plainsmen by Zane Gray Chapter 5 Oak Spring Mose and Don and Sounder straggled into camp next morning, hungry, foot-sore, and scared. And as they limped in, Jones met them with characteristic speech. "'Well, you decided to come in when you got hungry and tired. Never thought of how you fooled me, did you? Now the first thing you get is a good licking.' He tied them in a little log pen near the cabin and whipped them soundly. And the next few days, while Wallace and I rested, he took them out separately and deliberately ran them over coyote and deer trails. Sometimes we heard his stentorian yell as a forerunner to the blast from his old shotgun. Then again we heard the shots unheralded by the yell. Wallace and I waxed warm under the collar over this peculiar method of training dogs, and each of us made dire threats but in justice to their implacable trainer the dogs never appeared to be hurt never a spot of blood fleckered on their glossy coats nor did they ever come home limping sounder grew wise and don gave up but mose appeared not to change all hands ready to rustle sang out frank one morning old baldy's got to be shod this brought us all except jones out of the cabin to see the object of frank's anxiety tied to a nearby oak At first I failed to recognize old Baldy. Vanished was his slow, sleepy, apathetic manner that had characterized him. His ears lay back on his head, fire flashed from his eyes. When Frank threw down the kit bag which emitted a metallic clanking, old Baldy sat back on his haunches, planted his forefeet deep in the ground, and plainly, as a horse could speak, said, "'No. Sometimes he's bad, and sometimes he's worse,' growled Frank. "'Sure he'd plumb bad this morning.' replied jim frank got the three of us to hold baldy's head and pull him up then he ventured to lift a hind foot over his knee old baldy straightened out his leg and sent frank sprawling into the dirt twice again frank patiently tried to hold a hind leg with the same result and then he lifted a forefoot baldy uttered a very intelligible snort bit through wallace's glove yanked jim off his feet and scared me so that i let go of his forelock then he broke the rope which held him to the tree. There was a plunge, a scattering of men, though Jim still valiantly held on to Baldy's head and a thrashing of scrub pinion where Baldy reached out vigorously with his hind feet. But for Jim, he would have escaped. What's well, all the row? called Jones from the cabin. Then, from the door, taking in the situation, he yelled, "Hold on, Jim! Pull down on the armor gold cayuse!" He leaped into action with a lasso in each hand, one whirling around his head. The slender rope straightened with a whiz and whipped around Baldi's legs as he kicked viciously. Jones pulled it tight, then fastened it with nibble fingers toward the tree. Let go, le go, Jim!' he yelled, whirling the other lasso. The rope flashed and fell over Baldi's head and tightened around his neck. Jones threw all the weight of his burly form on the lariat, and Baldy crashed to the ground, rolled, tussled, screamed, and then lay on his back, kicking the air with three free legs hold this ordered jones giving the tight rope to frank whereupon he grabbed my lasso from the saddle roped baldy's two forefeet and pulled him down on his side this lasso he fastened to a scrub cedar he's choking," said frank likely he is replied jones shortly it'll do him good but with his big hands he drew the coil loose and slipped it down over baldy's nose where he tightened it again now go ahead he said taking the rope from frank it had all been done in a twinkling. Baldy lay there, groaning and helpless, and when Frank once again took hold of the wicked leg, he was almost passive. When the shoeing operation had been neatly and quickly attended to and Baldy released from his uncomfortable position, he struggled to his feet with heavy breaths, shook himself, and looked at his master. "'How'd you like being hog-tied?' queried his conqueror, rubbing Baldy's nose. Now after this, you'll have some manners.' Old Baldy seemed to understand, for he looked sheepish, and lapsed once more into his listless, lazy, unconcern. Where's Jim's old Cayuse? The pack horse? asked our leader. Lost. Couldn't find him this morning, and had a deuce of a time finding the rest of the bunch. Old Baldy was cute. He hid in a bunch of pinions and stood quiet so his bell wouldn't ring. I'd trail him. Do the horses stay far away when they are hobbled, inquired Wallace. If they keep jumping all night, they can cover some territory. We're now on the edge of the wild horse country, and our nags know this as well as we. They smell the mustangs and would break their necks to get away. Satan and sorrel were ten miles from camp when I found them this morning. and Jim's cayuse went farther, and we never will get him. He'll wear his hobbles out, then away with the wild horses. Once with them, he'll never be caught again. On the sixth day of our stay at Oak, we had visitors whom Frank introduced as the Stewart brothers and Lawson, wild horse wranglers. They were still dark men, whose facial expressions seldom varied, tall and lithe and wiry as the mustangs they rode. The Stuarts were on their way back to Knobbe, Utah, to arrange for the sale of a drove of horses they had captured and corralled in a narrow canyon, back in the Siwash. Lawson said he was at her service and was promptly hired to look after our horses. "'Any cougar signs back in the bricks?' asked Jones. "'Well, there's a cougar on every deer trail,' replied the elder Stuart. And two for every pinto in the brakes. Old Tom himself downed fifteen colts for us this spring. Fifteen colts? That's wholesale murder. Why don't you kill the butcher? We've tried more'n once. It's a terrible, busted-up country, them brakes. No man knows it, and the cougars do. Old Tom ranges all the ridges and brakes, even up on the slopes of buckskin. "'but he lives down there in them holes, "'and Lord knows no dog I ever seen could follow him. "'We tracked him in the snow and had dogs after him, "'but none could stay with him, except two has never come back. "'But we've nothing again, old Tom, like Jeff Clark, a hoss-rustler, "'who has a stirring of pintos corralled north of us. "'Clark swears he ain't raised a colt in two years.' "'We'll put that old cougar up a tree,' exclaimed Jones. If you kill him, we'll make you all a present of a mustang, and Clark, he'll give you two each, replied Stuart. We'd be getting rid of him cheap. How many wild horses are on the mountain now? Hard to tell. Two or three thousand, maybe. There's almost no catching them, and uh, they're growing all the time. We ain't had no luck this spring. Bunch of corral we got last year. See anything of the white mustang? inquired Frank ever get a rope near him Nah, near we have for six years back he can't be catched we seen him and his band of blacks a few days ago heading for a water hole down where nail canyon runs in the canab canyon he's so cunning he'll never water at any of our trap corrals and we believe he can go without water for two weeks unless maybe he's at a secret hole we never trailed him to Would we have any chance to see this white Mustang and his band? questioned Jones. Same? That'd be easy. Go down to Snake Gulch camp at Singing Cliffs, go over to Nail Canyon and wait, then send someone slipping down to the water hole at Knab Canyon, and when the band comes to drink, which I reckon will be in a few days now, have them drive the Mustangs up. Only be sure to have them get ahead of the white Mustang so he'll have only one way to come for he sure is known. He never makes a mistake. Maybe you'll get to see him come by like a white streak. Well, I've heard that Mustang's hooves ring like bells on the rocks a mile away. His hoofs are harder than any iron shoe has ever made. But even if you don't get to see him, snake is worth seeing. I learned later from Stewart that the white Mustang was a beautiful stallion of the wildest strain of Mustang blue blood. He had roamed the long reaches between the Grand Canyon and Buckskin toward its southern slope for years. He had been the most sought-for horse by all the wranglers, and had become so shy and experienced that nothing but a glimpse was ever obtained of him. A singular fact was he never attached any of his own species to his band, unless they were coal-black. He had been known to fight and kill other stallions, but he kept out of the well-wooded and watered country frequented by other bands, and ranged the brakes of the seawish as far as he could range. The usual method, indeed, the only successful way to capture wild horses, was to build corrals around the water holes. The wranglers lay out night after night watching. When the Mustangs came to drink, which was always after dark, the gates would be closed on them. But the trick had never been tried on the white Mustang, for the simple reason that he had never approached one of the traps. "'Boys,' said Jones, "'saying we need breaking in, "'we'll give the white Mustang a little run.' "'This was most pleasurable news, "'for the wild horses fascinated me. "'Besides, I saw from the expression on our leader's face "'that an uncapturable Mustang "'was an object of interest to him. "'Wallace and I had employed the last few warm sunny afternoons "'in riding up and down the valley below Oak, where there was a fine level stretch. Here I wore out my soreness of muscle, and gradually overcame my awkwardness in the saddle. Frank's remedy of maple sugar and red pepper had rid me of my cold, and with the return of strength and the coming of confidence, full joyous appreciation of wild environment and life made me unspeakably happy, and I noticed that my companions were in like condition of mind, though self-contained where I was exuberant. Wallace galloped his sorrel and watched the crags. Jones talked more kindly to the dogs. Jim baked biscuits indefatigably and smoked in contented silence. Frank said, "Always, we lose along easy like, for we've all the time there is." Which sentiment, whether from reiterated suggestion or increasing confidence in the practical cowboy, or charm of its free import, gradually won us all. Boys," said Jones, as we sat around the campfire i see you're getting in shape well i've worn off the wire edge myself and have the hounds coming fine they mind me now but they're mystified for the life of them they can't understand what i mean i don't blame them wait till by good luck we get a cougar in a tree when sounder and don see that we've lion dogs boys we've lion dogs But Mose is a stubborn brute. In all my years of animal experience, I've never discovered any other way to make animals obey than by instilling fear and respect into their hearts. I've been fond of buffalo horses and dogs, but sentiment never ruled me. When animals must obey, they must, that's all, and no mawkishness. But I never trusted a buffalo in my life. If I had, I wouldn't be here tonight you all know how many keepers of tame wild animals get killed? I could tell you dozens of tragedies. And I've often thought, since I got back from New York, of that woman I saw with her troop of African lions. I'd dream about those lions and see them leaping over her head. What a grand sight that was! But the public is fooled. I read somewhere that she trained those lions by love. I don't believe it. I saw her use a whip and steel spear. Moreover. I saw many things that escaped most observers. How she entered the cage, how she maneuvered among them, how she kept a compelling gaze on them. It was an admirable, a great piece of work. Maybe she loves those huge yellow brutes, but her life was in danger every moment while she was in that cage and she knew it. Some day, one of her pets, likely the king of beasts she pets the most, will rise up and kill her. That is as certain as death. End of chapter five Chapter six of the Last Plainsman by Zane Gray This Libravox recording is in the public domain, recording by Mike Vendetti The Last Plainsman by Zane Gray Chapter six The White Mustang for thirty miles down Nail Canyon, we marked in every dusty trail and sandy wash the small, oval, sharply defined tracks of the white Mustang and his band. The canyon had been well named. It was long, straight, and square-sided. Its bare walls glared steel-gray in the sun's smooth, glistening surfaces that had been polished by wind and water. No weathered heaps of shale, no crumbled piles of stone obstructed its level floor. And softly toning its drab austerity, here grew the white sage waving in the breeze the Indian paintbrush, with vivid vermilion flower, and patches of fresh green grass. The White King, as we Arizona wild-hoss wranglers call this Mustang, is mighty particular about his feed, and he ranged along here last night, easy like browsing on the white sage, said Stuart, infected by our intense interest in the famous Mustang, and ruffled slightly by Jones's manifest surprise and contempt that no one had captured him. Stewart had volunteered to guide us. Never knowed him to run in this way for water. Fact is, never knowed Nail Canyon hit a fork. It splits down here, but you'd think it was only a crack in the wall. And that cunning kind of mustang he's been foolin' us for years about this water hole. The fork of Nail Canyon, which Stewart had decided we were in, had been accidentally discovered by Frank, who in search of our horses one morning, had crossed a ridge to come suddenly upon the blind box-like head of the canyon stuart knew the lay of the ridges and run of the canyons as well as any man could know a country where seemingly every rod was ridged and bisected and he was of the opinion that we had stumbled upon one of the white mustang's secret passages by which he had so often eluded his pursuers hard riding had been the order of the day but still we covered ten more miles by sundown the canyon apparently closed in on us so camp was made for the night the horses were staked out and supper made ready while the shadows were dropping and when darkness settled thick over us we lay under our blankets morning disclosed the white mustang's secret passage it was a narrow cleft splitting the canyon wall rough uneven tortuous and choked with fallen rocks no more than a wonderful crack in the solid stone opening into another canyon above us the sky seemed a winding flowering steam of blue the walls were so close in places that a horse with pack would have been blocked and a rider had to pull his legs up over the saddle on the far side the passage fell very suddenly for several hundred feet to the floor of the other canyon no hunter could have seen it or suspected it from that side this is grand canyon country and nobody knows what he's going to find was frank's comment now we're in nail canyon proper said stewart and i know my bearings i can climb out a mile below and cut across Canab canyon and slip up into nail canyon again ahead of the mustangs and drive em up i can't miss em for Canab canyon is impassable down a little ways the mustangs'll have to run this way so all you need to do is go below the break where i climb out and wait "'You're sure going to get a look at the white mustang. "'But wait. Don't expect him before noon and after that. "'Any time till he comes. Maybe it will be a couple of days, so keep a good watch.' "'Then taking our man Lawson with blankets and a knapsack of food, Stuart rode off down the canyon. "'We were early on the march. "'As we proceeded, the canyon lost its regularity and smoothness. "'It became crooked as a rail fence, narrower, higher, rugged, and broken.' pinnacle cliffs cracked and leaning menaced us from above mountains of ruined wall had tumbled into fragments it seems that jones after much survey of different corners angles and points in the canyon floor chose his position with much greater care than appeared necessary for the ultimate success of our venture which was simply to see the white mustang and if good fortune attended us to snap some photographs of this wild king of horses it flashed over me that with his ruling passion strong within him our leader was laying some kind of trap for the mustang was indeed bent on his capture wallace frank and jim were stationed at a point below the break where stewart had evidently gone up and out how a horse could have climbed that streaky wide slide was a mystery jones's instructions to the men were to wait until the mustangs were close upon them and then yell and shout and show themselves He took me to a jutting corner of the cliff, which hid us from the others, and he exercised still more care in scrutinizing the lay of the ground, A wash from ten to fifteen feet wide, and as deep, ran through the canyon in a somewhat meandering course. At the corner, which consumed so much of his attention, the dry ditch ran along the cliff wall about fifty feet out. Between it and the wall was good level ground. On the other side, Huge rocks and shale made it hummocky, practically impassable for a horse. It was plain the Mustangs, on their way up, would choose the inside of the wash, and here in the middle of the passage, just around the jutting corner, Jones tied our horses to good strong bushes. His next act was significant. He threw out his lasso, and, dragging every crook out of it, carefully recoiled it and hung it loose over the pommel of his saddle. The white mustang may be yours before dark, he said with a smile that came so seldom. Now, I placed our horses there for two reasons. The mustangs won't see them till they're right on them. Then you'll see a sight, and you'll have a chance for a great picture. They will halt, the stallion will prance, whistle, and snort for a fight, and then they'll see the saddles and be off. We'll hide across the wash down a little way, and at the right time we'll shout and yell to drive them up. By piling stage-brush around a stone, we made a hiding place. Jones was extremely cautious to arrange the bunches in natural positions. A Rocky Mountain Bighorn is the only four-footed beast, he said, that has a better eye than a wild horse. A cougar has an eye, too. He's used to lying high up on the cliffs and looking down for his quarry, so as to stalk it at night. But even a cougar has to take second to a mustang when it comes to sight the hours passed slowly the sun baked us the stones were too hot to touch flies buzzed behind our ears tarantulas peeped at us from holes the afternoon slowly waned at dark we returned to where we had left wallace and the cowboys frank had solved the problem of water supply for he had found a little spring trickling from a cliff which by a skillful management produced enough drink for the horses we had packed our water for camp use you take the first watch tonight said jones to me after supper the mustangs might try to slip through our fire in the night and we must keep a watch for them call wallace when your time's up now fellows roll in when the pink of dawn was shading white we were at our posts a long hot day interminably long deadening to the keenest interest passed and still no mustangs came We slept and watched again in the grateful cool of night, till the third day broke. The hours passed, the cool breeze changed to hot, the sun blazed over the canyon wall, the stones scorched, the flies buzzed. I fell asleep in the scant shade of the sage bushes and awoke, stifled and moist. The old plainsman, never weary, leaned with his back against a stone and watched, with narrow gaze, the canyon below. The steely walls hurt my eyes, the sky was like hot copper. Though nearly wild with heat and aching bones and muscles and the long hours of wait, 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 I was ashamed to complain, for there sat the old man still and silent. I rotted out a hairy tarantula from under a stone and teased him into a frenzy with my stick and tried to get up a fight between him and a scalloped-backed horned toad that blinked wonderingly at me. Then I espied a green lizard on a stone. beautiful reptile was about a foot in length, bright green, dotted with red, and he had diamonds for eyes. Nearby a purple flower blossomed, delicate and pale, with a bee sucking at its golden heart. I observed then that the lizard had his jeweled eyes upon the bee. He slipped to the edge of the stone, flicked out a long red tongue, and tore the insect from its honeyed perch. Here were beauty, life, and death, and I had been weary for something to look at, to think about to distract me from the wearisome wait. "'Listen,' broke in Jones's sharp voice. His neck was stretched, his eyes were closed, his ear was turned to the wind. With a thrilling, reawakened eagerness, I strained my hearing. I caught a faint sound, then lost it. "'Put your ear to the ground,' said Jones. I followed his advice and detected the rhythmic beat of galloping hoofs. "'Mustangs are coming, sure as you're born,' exclaimed Jones there see that cloud of dust cried he a minute later in the first bend of the canyon below a splintered ruin of rock now lay under a rolling cloud of dust A white flash appeared a line of bobbing black objects and more dust then with a sharp pounding of hoofs into clear vision shot a dense black band of mustangs and well in front swung the white king look look i never saw the beat of that never in my born days cried jones how they move yet that white fellow isn't half stretched out get your picture before they pass you'll never see the beat of that with long manes and tails flying the mustangs came on pace and passed us in a trampling roar the white stallion in front suddenly a shrill whistling blast unlike any sound i have ever heard made the canyon fairly ring the white stallion plunged back and his band closed in behind him he had seen our saddle horses then trembling winning and with arched neck and high-poised head, bespeaking his mettle, he advanced a few paces, and again whistled his shrill note of defiance. Pure, creamy white he was, and built like a racer. He pranced, struck his hoof hard, and cavorted. Then, taking sudden fright, he wheeled. It was then, when the Mustangs were pivoting, with the white in the lead, that Jones jumped upon the stone, fired his pistol, and roared with all his strength, Taking his cue I did likewise. The band huddled back again, uncertain and frightened, then broke up the canyon. Jones jumped the ditch with surprising agility, and I followed close at his heels. When we reached our plunging horses he shouted Mount and hold this passage. Keep close by on that big stone at the turn so they can't run you down or stampede you. If they head your way, scare them back. Satan quivered, and when I mounted reared and plunged i had to hold him in hard for he was eager to run at the cliff wall i was at some pains to check him he kept champing his bit and stamping his feet from my post i could see the mustangs flying before a cloud of dust jones was turning in his horse behind a large rock in the middle of the canyon where he evidently intended to hide presently successive yells and shots from our comrades blended in the roar with the narrow box canyon augmented and echoed from wall to wall. High the white mustang reared, and above the roar whistled his snort of furious terror, his band wheeled with him, and charged back, their hooves ringing like hammers on iron. The crafty old buffalo hunter had hemmed the mustangs in a circle and had left himself free in the center. It was a wily trick born of his quick mind and experienced eye the stallion closely crowded by his followers moved swiftly i saw that he must pass near the stone thundering crashing the horses came on away beyond them i saw frank and wallace then jones yelled to me open up open up i turned satan into the middle of the narrow passage screaming at the top of my voice and discharging my revolver rapidly but the wild horses thundered on jones saw that they would not be balked and he spurred his big bay directly in their path the big horse courageous as his intrepid master dove forward then followed confusion for me the pound of hoofs the snorts a screaming neigh that was frightful of the mad stampede of the mustangs with a whirling cloud of dust bewildered and frightened me so that i lost sight of jones danger threatened and passed me almost before i was aware of it out of the dust a mass of tossing manes foam-flecked black horses wild eyes and lifting hoof rushed at me satan the presence of mind that shamed mine leaped back and hugged the wall my eyes were blinded by dust the smell of dust choked me i felt a strong rush of wind and a mustang grazed my stirrup then they had passed on the wings of the dust-laden breeze but not all for i saw that jones had in some inexplicable manner cut the white mustang and two of his blacks out of the band he had turned them back again and was pursuing them the bay he rode had never before appeared to much advantage and now with his long lean powerful body in splendid action imbued with the relentless will of his rider what a picture he presented how he did run with all that the white mustang made him look dingy and slow nevertheless it was a critical time in the wild career of that king of horses he had been pinned in a space two hundred by five hundred yards half of which was separated from him by a wide ditch, a yawning chasm, that he had refused. And behind him, always keeping on the inside, wheeled the yelling hunter, who savagely spurred his bay and whirled a deadly lasso. He had been cut off and surrounded. The very nature of the rocks and trails of the canyon threatened to end his freedom or his life certain it was he preferred to end the latter for he risked death from the rocks as he went over them in long leaps jones could have roped either of the two blacks but he hardly noticed them covered with dust and splotches of foam they took their advantage turned in a circle toward the passageway and galloped by me out of sight again wallace frank and jim let out strings of yells and volleys the chase was narrowing down trapped the white mustang king had no chance what a grand spirit he showed frenzied as i was with excitement the thought occurred to me that this was an unfair battle that i ought to stand aside and let him pass but the blood and lust of primitive instinct held me fast jones keeping back met his every turn yet always with the lithe and beautiful stride the stallion kept out of reach of the whirling lariat Close in, yelled Jones with his voice, powerful with a note of triumph, bespoke the knell of the king's freedom. The trap closed in, back and forth at the upper end. The white mustang worked, then rendered desperate. By the closing in. he circled round nearer to me. Fire shone in his wild eyes. The wily Jones was not to be outwitted. He kept in the middle, always on the move, and he yelled to me to open up i lost my voice again and fired my last shot then the mustang burst into a dash of daring despairing speed it was his last magnificent effort straight for the wash at the upper end he pointed his racy spirited head and his white legs stretched far apart twinkled and stretched again jones galloped to cut him off and the yells he emitted were demoniacal it was a long straight race for the mustang a short curve for the bay that the white stallion gained was as sure as his resolve to elude capture, and he never swerved a foot from his course. Jones might have headed him, but manifestly he wanted to ride with him as well as to meet him, so in case the lasso went true a terrible shock might be averted. Up went Jones's arm as the space shortened and the lasso reined his head. Out it shot lengthened like a yellow striking snake and fell just short of the flying white tail. The white mustang— fulfilling his purpose in his last heroic display of power sailed into the air up and up and over the wide wash like a white streak free the dust rolled in a cloud from under his hoofs and he vanished jones's superb horse crashing down on his haunches just escaped sliding into the hole i awoke to the realization that satan had carried me in pursuit of the thrilling chase all the way across the circle without my knowing it. Jones calmly wiped sweat from his face, calmly coiled his lasso, and calmly remarked, "'In trying to capture wild animals, a man must never be too sure. Now what I thought my strong point was my weak point, the wash. I made sure no horse could ever jump that hole. End of chapter 6 Chapter seven of the Last Plainsman by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, recording by Mike Vendetti. The Last Plainsman by Zane Gray, Chapter seven. Snake Gulch Not far from the scene of our adventures with the White Streak, as we facetiously and appreciatively named the Mustang, a deep flat cave indented the canyon wall. By reason of its sandy floor and close proximity to Frank's trickling spring we decided to camp in it. About dark, Lawson and Stuart straggled in on spent horses, and found awaiting them a bright fire, a hot supper, and cheery comrades. "'D'y far'y get to see him?' was the tall ranger's first question. "'Did we get to see him?' echoed five lusty voices as one. "'We did.' It was after Frank, in his plain, blunt speech, had told of our experience that the long Arizonan gazed fixedly at Jones. "'Did ye actually touch the hair on that mustang with a rope?' In all his days, Jones never had a greater compliment. By way of reply, he moved his big hand to a button of his coat, and, fumbling over it, unwound a string of long white hairs, then said, "'I'll pull these out of his tail with my lasso. I missed his left hind foot about six inches.' There were six of the hairs, pure, glistening white, and over three feet long. Stuart examined them in expressive silence, then passed them along. And when they reached me, they stayed. The cave, lighted up by a blazing fire, appeared to me a forbidding, uncanny place. Small, peculiar round holes and dark cracks, suggestive of hidden vermin, gave me a creepy feeling. And although not oversensitive on the subject of crawling, creeping things, voiced my disgust. "'Say, I don't like the idea of sleeping in this hole. I'll bet it's full of spider snakes and centipedes and other poisonous things.' Whatever there was in my inoffensive declaration to rouse the usually slumbering humor of the Arizonans and the thinly-veiled ridicule of Colonel Jones and a mixture of both in my once loyal California friend, I am not prepared to state.' Maybe it was the dry, sweet, cool air of Nail Canyon, maybe my suggestion awoke ticklish association that worked themselves off thus. Maybe it was the first instance of my committing myself to a breach of camp etiquette. Be that what it may, my innocently expressed sentiment gave rise to bewildering dissertations on etymology, and most remarkable and startling tales from first-hand experience. Like as not, began Frank in matter-of-fact tone, them's tarantula holes all right and scorpions centipedes and rattlers always rustle with tarantulas but we never mind them not us fellers we're used to sleepin with em why often wake up in the night and see a big tarantula on my chest and see him wink ain't that so jim sure as hell drawled faithful slow jim reminds me of how fatal the bite of a centipede is took up Colonel Jones complacently. Once I was sitting in camp with a hunter, who suddenly hissed out,
0: "'Jones,
1: for God's sake, don't budge. There's a centipede on your arm.' He pulled his colt and shot the blamed centipede off as clean as a whistle. But the bullet hit a steer in the leg, and, would you believe it, the bullet carried so much poison that in less than two hours the steer died of blood poisoning.' "'Centipedes are so poisoning they leave a blue trail on flesh just by crawling over it. "'Look there.' "'He bared his arm, and there on the brown corded flesh "'was a blue trail of something, I was certain. "'It might have been made by a centipede.' "'This is a likely place for them,' put in Wallace, "'emitting a volume of smoke and gazing round the cave walls with the eyes of a connoisseur.' My archaeological pursuits have given me great experience with centipedes, as you may imagine, considering how many old tombs, caves, and cliff-dwellings I've explored. This Algonquin rock is about the right stratum for centipedes to dig in. Dig digs somewhat after the manner of the fluid-filled long-tailed decop crustications of the Genoa Thermocoscata—the common crayfish, you know. From that, of course, you can imagine, if a centipede can bite rock, what a biter he is. I began to grow weak and did not wonder to see Jim's long pipe fall from his lips. Frank looked queer around the gills, so to speak, but the gaunt steward never better an eye. I camped here two years ago, he said, and the cave was alive with rock rats, mice, snakes, horned toads, lizards, and a big gila monster. Besides bugs, scorpion, rattlers, and as for tarantulas and centipedes, hey, "'couldn't sleep for the noise they made fightin'. "'I seen the same,' concluded Lawson, "'as nonchalant as a wild-horse wrangler well could be. "'And as for me, now I always lay perfectly still "'when the centipedes and tarantulas begin to drop down "'from their holes in the roof, same as them holes up there. "'And when they light on me, I never move, "'nor even breathe for about five minutes.' Then they take a notion I'm dead and crawl off. But sure, if I'd breathed, I'd be a goner. All of this was playfully intended for the extinction of an unoffending and impressionable tenderfoot. With an admiring glance at my tormentors, I rolled out my sleeping bag and crawled into it, vowing I would remain there even if devilfish armed with pikes invaded our cave. Late in the night I awoke. The bottom of the canyon and the outer floor of our cave lay bathed in white, clear moonlight. A dense, gloomy black shadow veiled the opposite canyon wall. High up the pinnacles and turrets pointed toward a resplendent moon. It was a weird, wonderful scene of beauty, entrancing of breathless, dreaming silence, that seemed not of life. Then Hurrao lamented dismally his call, fitting the scene and the dead stillness. The echoes resounded from cliff to cliff, strangely mocking and hollow, at last, reverberating low and mournful in the distance. How long I lay there enraptured with the beauty of light and mystery of shade, thrilling at the lonesome lament of the owl, I have no means to tell. But I was awakened from my trance by the touch of something crawling over me. Promptly I raised my head. The cave was as light as day. There, sitting sociably on my sleeping-bag, was a great black tarantula as large as my hand. For one still moment, notwithstanding my contempt for Lawson's advice, I certainly acted upon it to the letter. If ever I was quiet, and if ever I was cold, the time was then. My companions snored in blissful ignorance of my plight. Slight rustling sounds attracted my wary gaze from the old black sentinel on my knee. I saw other black spiders, running to and fro on the silver, sandy floor. A giant as large as a soft-shell crab seemed to be meditating an assault upon Jones's ear. Another grizzled and shiny with age or moonbeams—I cannot tell—which pushed long tentative feelers into Wallace's cap. I saw black spots darting over the floor. It was not a dream the cave was alive with tarantulas not improbably my strong impression that the spider on my knee deliberately winked at me was the result of memory enlivening imagination but it sufficed to bring to mind in one rapid consoling flash the irrevocable law of destiny that the deeds of the wicked return unto them again i slipped back into my sleeping bag with a keen consciousness of its nature and carefully pulled the flap in place which almost hermetically sealed me up hey jones wallace frank jim i yelled from the depths of my safe refuge wondering cries gave me glad assurance that they had awakened from their dreams the cave's alive with tarantulas i cried trying to hide my unholy glee i'll be durned if it ain't ejaculated frank it beats hell added jim with a shake of his blanket look out jones there's one on your pillow shouted wallace Whack sharp blow proclaimed the opening of hostilities memory stamped indelibly every word of the incident but innate delicacy prevents the repetition of all save the old warrior's concluding remarks place i was ever in tarantulas by the millions centipedes scorpions bats rattlesnakes too elsewhere look out wallace there under your blanket from the shuffling sounds which waved sweetly into my bed i gathered that my long friend from california must have gone through motions credible to a contortionist. An ensuing explosion from Jones proclaimed to the listening world that Wallace had thrown a tarantula upon him. Further fearful language suggested the thought that Colonel Jones had passed on the inquisitive spider to Frank. The reception accorded the unfortunate tarantula, no doubt scared out of his wits, began with a wild yell from Frank and ended up in pandemonium while the confusion kept up with wax and blows and threshing about with language such as never before had disgraced a group of old campers i choked with rapture and reveled in the sweetness of revenge when quiet regained once more in the black and white canyon only one sleeper lay on the moon-silvered sand of the cave at dawn when i opened my sleepy eyes frank jim stewart and lawson had departed as prearranged with the outfit leaving the horses belonging to us and rations for the day. Wallace and I wanted to climb the Divide at the break and go home by way of Snake Gulch, and the Colonel acquiesced with the remark that his sixty-three years had taught him there was much to see in the world. Coming to undertake it, we found the climb, except for a slide of weathered rock, no great task, and we accomplished it in half an hour, with breath to spare and no mishap to horses. But descending into Snake Gulch, which was only a mile across the sparsely cedared ridge, proved to be tedious labor. By virtue of Satan's patience and skill, I forged ahead, which advantage, however, meant more risk for me because of the stones set in motion above. They rolled and bumped and cut into me, and I sustained many a bruise trying to protect the sinewy, slender legs of my horse. The descent ended without serious mishap snake gulch had a character and sublimity which cast nail canyon into the obscurity of forgetfulness the great contrast lay in their diversity of structure the rock was bright red with parapet of yellow that leaned heaved and bulged outward the emblazoned cliff walls two thousand feet high were cracked from turret to base they bowled out at such an angle that we were afraid to ride under them Mountains of yellow rock hung balanced, ready to tumble down at the first angry breath of the gods. We rode among carved stones, pillars, obelisks, and sculptured ruined walls of a fallen Babylon. Slides reaching all the way across and far up the canyon walls obstructed our passage. On every stone silent green lizards sunned themselves, gliding swiftly as we came near to their marble homes. We came into a region of wind-blown caves of all sizes and shapes, high and low, on the cliffs. But, strange to say, only on the north side of the canyon they appeared with dark mouths open and uninviting, one vast and deep, though far off, menaced us as might the cave of a tawny-maned king of beasts. Yet it impelled, fascinated, and drew us on. "'It's a long, hard climb,' said Wallace to the colonel as we dismounted. "'Boys, I'm with you,' came the reply. And he was with us all the way as we clambered over the immense blocks, then threaded a passage between them and pulled weary legs up, one after the other. So steep lay the jumble of cliff fragments that we lost sight of the cave long before we got near it. Suddenly we rounded a stone to halt and gasp at the thing looming before us. The dark portal of death or hell might have yawned there. A gloomy hole." large enough to admit a church had been hollowed in the cliff by ages of nature's chiseling vast sepulchre of times past give up thy dead cried wallace solemnly oh dark stykin cave forlorn quoted i as feeling as my friend jones hauled us down from the clouds now i wonder what kind of prehistoric animal hold in here said he forever, the one absorbing interest. If he realized the sublimity of this place, he did not show it. The floor of the cave ascended from the very threshold. Stony ridges circled from wall to wall. We climbed till we were two hundred feet from the opening. Yet we were not half-way to the dome. Our horses browsing in the sage far below looked like ants. So steep did the ascent become that we desisted for if one of us had slipped on the smooth incline the result would have been terrible our voices rang clear and hollow from the walls we were so high that the sky was blotted out by the overhanging square cornice-like top of the door and the light was weird dim shadowy opaque it was a gray tomb wahoo yelled jones with all the power of his wide leathery lungs thousands of devilish voices rushed at us seemingly on puffs of winds, mocking deep echoes bellowed from the ebon shades at the back of the cave, and the walls, taking them up, hurled them on again, in faintish concantation. We did not again break the silence of that tomb, where the spirits of ages lay in dusty shrouds, and we crawled down as if we had invaded a sanctuary and invoked the wrath of the gods. We all proposed names—Montezuma's amphitheatre, Being the only rival of Jones's selection, Echo Cave, which we finally chose, mounting our horses again, we made twenty miles of Snake Gulch by noon when we rested for lunch. All the way up we had played the boys' game of spying for sights, with the honors about even. It was a question if Snake Gulch ever before had such a raking over. Despite its name, however, we discovered no snakes. From the sandy niche of a cliff where we lunched, Wallace espied a tomb, and heralded his discovery with a victorious whoop. Digging in old ruins roused in him much the same spirit that digging in old books roused in me. Before we reached him, he had a big bowie-knife buried deep in the red sandy floor of the tomb. This one-time sealed house of the dead had been constructed of small stones, held together by a cement the nature of which... Wallace explained, had never become clear to civilization. It was red in color and hard as flint, harder than the rocks it glued together. The tomb was half round in shape, and its floor was a projecting shelf of cliff rock. Wallace unearthed bits of pottery, bone, and finely braided rope, all of which, to our great disappointment, crumbled to dust in our fingers. In the case of the rope, Wallace assured us this was a sign of remarkable antiquity. In the next mile we traversed. We found dozens of these old cells, all demolished except for a few feet of the walls, all despoiled of their one-time possessions. Wallace thought these depredations were due to Indians of our own time. Suddenly we came upon Jones, standing under a cliff with his neck craned to a desperate ankle. "'Now what's that?' demanded he, pointing upward. High on the cliff wall appeared a small round protuberance it was of the unmistakably red color of the other tombs and wallace more excited than he had been in the cougar chase said it was a sepulchre and he believed it had never been opened from an elevated point of rock as high up as i could well climb i decided both questions with my glass the tomb resembled nothing so much as a mud wasps nest high on a barn wall the fact that it had never been broken open quite carried wallace away with enthusiasm "'This is no mean discovery, let me tell you that,' he declared. "'I am familiar with the Aztec, Toltec, and Pueblo ruins, and here I find no similarity. Besides, we are out of their latitude. An ancient race of people, very ancient indeed, lived in this canyon. How long ago, it is impossible to tell.' "'They must have been birds,' said the practical Jones. "'Now how'd that tomb get there? Look at it, will you?' As near as we could ascertain, it was three hundred feet from the ground below, five hundred from the rim wall above, and could not possibly have been approached from the top. Moreover, the cliff wall was as smooth as a wall of human make. "'There's another one,' called out Jones. "'Yes, and I see another. No doubt there are many of them,' replied Wallace. "'In my mind, only one thing possible accounts for their position. "'You observe they appear to be about level with each other.' well once the canyon floor ran along that line and in the ages gone by it is lowered washed away by the rains this conception staggered us but it was the only one conceivable no doubt we all thought at the same time of the little rainfall in that arid section of arizona how many years queried jones years what are years said wallace Thousands of years, ages have passed since the race who built these tombs lived. Some persuasion was necessary to drag our scientific friend from the spot, where, obviously helpless to do anything else, he stood and gazed longingly at the isolated tombs. The canyon widened as we proceeded, and hundreds of points that invited inspection, such as overhanging shelves of rock, dark fissures, caverns, and ruins, had to be passed by for lack of time. Still more interesting and important discovery was to come, and the pleasure and honour of it fell to me. My eyes were sharp and peculiarly far-sighted. The Indian sight, Jones assured me, and I kept them searching the walls in such places as my companions overlooked. Presently, under a large bulging bluff, I saw a dark spot which took the shape of a figure. This figure, I recollected, had been presented to my sight more than once, and now it stopped me. The hard climb up the slippery stones was fatiguing, but I did not hesitate, for I was determined to know. Once upon the ledge I let out a yell that quickly set my companions in my direction. The figure I had seen was a dark red devil, a painted image, rude, unspeakably wild, crudely executed, but painted by the hand of man. The whole surface of the cliff wall bore figures, of all shapes, men, animals, birds, in strange devices some in red paint mostly in yellow some showed the wear of time others were clear and sharp wallace puffed up to me but he had wind enough left for another whoop jones puffed up also and seeing the first thing a rude sketch of what might have been a deer or a buffalo he commented thus darn me if i ever saw an animal like that boys this is a find sure as you're born because not even the piutes ever spoke of these figures i doubt if they know they're here and the cowboys and wranglers what few ever get here in a hundred years never saw these things beats anything i ever saw in the mackenzie or anywhere else the meaning of some devices was as mystical as that of others was clear two blood-red figures of men the larger dragging the smaller by the hair while he waved aloft a blood-red hatchet or club left little to conjecture here was the old battle of men as old as life another group two figures of which resembled the foregoing in form and action battling over a prostrate form rudely feminine in outline attested to an age when men were as susceptible as they are in modern times but more forceful and original an odd yellow indian waved aloft a red hand which striking picture suggested the idea that he was an ancient macbeth listening to the knocking at the gate there was a character representing a great chief before whom many figures lay prostrate evidently slain or subjugated large red paintings in the shape of bats occupied prominent positions and must have represented gods or devils armies of marching men told of that blight of nations old or young war these and birds unnameable and beasts unclassifiable with dots and marks and hieroglyphics recorded the history of a bygone people symbols they were of an era that had gone into the dim past leaving only these marks forever unintelligible yet while they stood century after century ineffaceable reminders of the glory the mystery the sadness of life how could paint of any kind last so long asked jones shaking his head doubtfully that is the unsolvable mystery returned wallace but the records are there i am absolutely sure the paintings are at least a thousand years old i have never seen any tombs or paintings similar to them Snake Gulch is a find, and I shall some day study its wonders. Sundown caught us within sight of Oak Spring, and we soon trotted into camp to the welcoming chorus of the hounds. Frank and the others had reached the cabin some hours before. Supper was steaming on the hot coals with a delicious fragrance. Then came the pleasantest time of the day. After a long chaser jaunt, the silent moments, watching the glowing embers of the fire, the speaking moments when a red-blooded story rang clear and true—the twilight moments—when the wood smoke smelled sweet. Jones seemed unusually thoughtful. I had learned that this preoccupation in him meant the stirring of old associations, and I waited silently. By and by, Lawson snored mildly in a corner, Jim and Frank crawled into their blankets, and all was still. Wallace smoked his Indian pipe and hunted in firelight dreams. Boys, said our leader finally somehow the echoes dying away in that cave reminded me of the mourn of the big white wolves in the barren lands wallace puffed huge clouds of white smoke and i waited knowing that i was to hear at last the story of the colonel's great adventure in the northland End of chapter seven Chapter 8 of The Last of the Plainsmen by Zane Grey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti, mikevendetti.com. The Last of the Plainsmen by Zane Grey, Chapter 8. Naza, naza, naza. It was a waiting day at Fort Chippawayan, the lonesome far northern Hudson Bay trading post seldom saw such life. Tipis dotted the banks of the Slave River, and lines of blanketed Indians paraded its shores. Near the boat landing, a group of chiefs, grotesque in semi-barbaric, semi-civilized splendor, but black-browed, austere-eyed, stood in savage dignity with folded arms and high-held heads. Lounging on the grassy bank were white men, traders, trappers, and officials of the post. All eyes were on the distant curve of the river, where, as it lost itself in a fine French bend of dark green, white glinting waves danced and fluttered a june sky lay blue in the majestic stream ragged spear-topped dense green trees massed down to the water beyond rose bold bald knobbed hills in remote purple relief long indian arm stretched south the waiting eyes discerned a black speck on the green and watched it grow a flatboat with a man standing to the oars bore down swiftly not a red hand nor a white one offered to help the voyager in the difficult landing the oblong clumsy heavily laden boat surged in with the current and passed the dock despite the boatman's efforts he swung his craft in below upon a bar and roped it fast to a tree the indians crowded above him on the bank the boatman raised his powerful form erect lifted a bronze face which seemed set in craggy hardness and cast from narrow eyes a keen cool glance on those above the silvery gleam in his hair told of years silence impressive as it was ominous broke only to the rattle of camping paraphernalia which the voyager threw to a level grassy bench on the bank evidently this unwelcome visitor had journeyed from afar and his boat sunk deep into the water with its load of barrels boxes and bags indicated that the journey had only begun significant too were a couple of long winchester rifles shining on a tarpaulin cold-faced crowd stirred and parted to permit the passage of a tall, thin, gray personage of official bearing in a faded military coat. "'Are you the musk-ox hunter?' he asked in tones that contained no welcome. The boatman greeted this preemptory interlocutor with a cool laugh—a strange laugh—in which the muscles of his face appeared not to play. "'Yes, I am, that man,' he said the chiefs of the chippewaian and great slave tribes have been apprised of your coming they have held council and are here to speak with you at a motion from the commandant the line of chieftains piled down to the level bench and formed a half-circle before the voyager to a man who had stood before grim sitting-bull and noble black thunder of the sioux and faced the falcon-eyed geronimo and glanced over the sights of a rifle at gorgeous feathered wild free comanches this semicircle of savages lords of the north was a sorry comparison bedobbled and betrinketed slouchy and slovenly these low-statured chiefs belied in appearance their scorned bright eyes and lofty mien, they made a sad group one who spoke in unintelligible language rolled out a haughty sonorous voice over the listening multitude when he had finished a half-breed interpreter in the dress of a white man, spoke at a signal from the commandant. He says, listen to the great orator of the Chippewyan. He has summoned all the chiefs of the tribes south of Great Slave Lake. He has held council. The cunning of the pale-face, who comes to take the musk oxen, is well known. Let the pale-face hunter return to his own hunting grounds. Let him turn his face from the north. Never. Will the chiefs permit the white man to take musk-oxen alive from their country? The agateer, the musk-ox, is their god. He gives them food and fur. He will never come back if he is taken away, and the reindeer will follow him. The chiefs and their people would starve. They command the pale-faced hunter to go back. They cry, Naza, Naza, Naza. Say, for a thousand miles, I've heard that word, Naza, returned the hunter, with mingled curiosity and disgust at edmonton indian runners start ahead of me and every village i struck the redskins would crowd around me and an old chief would harangue at me and motion me back and point north with naza 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 what does it mean no white man knows no indian will tell answered the interpreter the traders think it means the great slave the north star the north spirit the north wind the north lights and agatir the musk ox god well say to the chiefs To tell Agateer, I have been four moons on the way after some of his little Agateers, and I'm going to keep on after them. Hunter, you are most unwise, broke in the Commandant in his officious voice. The Indians will never permit you to take a musk-ox alive from the north. They worship him, pray to him. It is a wonder you have not been stopped. Who will stop me? The Indians, they will kill you if you do not turn back. Uh, to tell an american plainsman that the hunter paused a steady moment with his eyelids narrowing over slits of blue fire there is no law to keep me out nothing but indian superstition and the greed of the Hudson bay people and i am an old fox not to be fooled by petty baits for years the officers of this fur-trading company have tried to keep out explorers even sir john franklin an englishman could not buy food of them. The policy of the company is to side with the Indians, to keep out traders and trappers. Why? So they can keep on cheating the poor savages out of clothing and food by trading a few trinkets and blankets, a little tobacco and rum for millions of dollars worth of furs. Have I failed to hire a man after man, Indian after Indian, not to know why I cannot get a helper? Have I, a plainsman? come a thousand miles alone to be scared by you or a lot of craven indians have i been dreaming of musk oxen for forty years to slink south now when i begin to feel the north not i deliberately every chief with the sound of a hissing snake spat in the hunter's face he stood immovable while they perpetrated the outrage then calmly wiped his cheeks and in his strange cool voice addressed the interpreter Tell them thus they show their true qualities, to insult and counsel. Tell them they are not chiefs, but dogs. Tell them they are not even squaws, only poor, miserable, starved dogs. Tell them I turn my back on them. Tell them the pale faces has fought real chiefs, fierce, bold, like eagles, and he turns his back on dogs. Tell them he is the one who could teach them to raise the musk and the reindeer, and to keep out the cold and the wolf. But they're blinded. Tell them the hunter goes north. Through the council of chiefs ran a low mutter, as of gathering thunder. True to his word, the hunter turned his back on them. As he brushed by, his eye caught a gaunt savage slipping from the boat. At the hunter's stern call, the Indian leaped ashore, and started to run. he had stolen a parcel. and would have succeeded in looting its owner, but for an unforeseen obstacle as striking as it was unexpected a white man of colossal stature had stepped in the chief's passage and laid two great hands on him instantly the parcel flew from the indian and he spun in the air to fall into the river with a sounding splash Yells signaled the surprise and alarm caused by this unexpected incident the indian frantically swam to the shore whereupon the champion of the stranger in a strange land lifted a bag which gave forth a musical clink of steel, and throwing it with the camp articles on the grassy bench, he extended a huge, friendly hand. "'My name is Rhea,' he said in a deep cavernous tones. "'Mine is Jones,' replied the hunter, and right quickly did he grasp a prolifered hand. He saw in Rhea a giant, of whom he was but a stunted shadow. Six and a half feet, Rhea stood with yard-wide shoulders, a bulk of bone and brawn. His ponderous, shaggy head rested on a bull neck. His broad face, with its low forehead, its close-shut mastiff under-jaw, its big opaque eyes, pale and cruel as those of a jaguar, marked him a man of terrible brute force. "'Free trader!' called the commandant. "'Better think twice before you join fortunes with the musk-ox hunter.' to hell with you and your rantin' dog-eared redskins cried rhea i've run agin a man of my own kind a man of my own country an i'm goin with him with this he thrust aside some encroaching gaping indians so unconcernedly and ungently that they sprawled upon the grass slowly the crowd mounted and once more lined the bank jones realized that by some late turning stroke of fortune he had fallen in with one of the few free-traders of the province. These free-traders, from the very nature of their calling, which was to defy the fur company and to trap and trade on their own account, were a hardy and intrepid class of men. Ray's worth to Jones exceeded that of a dozen ordinary men. He knew the ways of the North, the language of the tribes, the habits of the animals, the handling of dogs, and uses of food and fuel. Moreover, it soon appeared that he was a carpenter and blacksmith, there kit,' he said, dumping the contents of his bag. "'It consisted of a bunch of steel traps, some tools, a broken axe, "'a box of miscellaneous things such as trappers use, "'and a few articles of flannel.' "'Thieving redskins?' he added, in explanation of his poverty. "'Not much of an outfit, but I'm the man for you. "'Besides, I had a pal once who knew you on the plains. "'Called you Buff. Jones. Old Jim Brent he was.' "'I recollect Jim,' said Jones.' he went down in custer's last charge so you were jim's pal that'd be a recommendation if you needed one but the way you chucked that indian overboard got me ray soon manifested himself as a man of few words and much action with the planks jones had on board he heightened the stern and bow of the boat to keep out the beating waves in the rapids he fashioned a steering gear and a less awkward set of oars and shifted the cargo so as to make more room in the craft "'Buff, we're in for a storm. Set up a tarpaulin and make a fire. We'll pretend to camp to-night. Those Indians won't dream we'd try to run the river after dark, and we'll slip by under cover.' The sun glazed over, clouds moved up from the north, a cold wind swept the tips of the spruces, and rain commenced to drive in gusts. By the time it was dark, not an Indian showed himself. They were housed from the storm." lights twinkled in the tepees and the big log cabins of the trading company jones scouted round till pitchy black night then a freezing pouring blast sent him back to the protection of the topperlin. when he got there he found that ray had taken it down and awaited him off said the free trader and with no more noise than a drifting feather the boat sprung into the current and glided down till the twinkling fires no longer accentuated the darkness By night the river, in common with all swift rivers, had a sullen voice, and murmured its hurry, its restraint, its minutes, its meaning. The two boatmen, one at the steering gear, one at the oars, faced the pelting rain and watched the dim, dark line of trees. The craft slid noiselessly onward into the gloom, and into Jones's ears above the storm poured another sound, a steady, muffled rumble, like the roll of giant chariot-wheels. It had come to be a familiar roar to him, and the only thing which, in his long life of hazard, had ever sent the cold, prickling, tight shudder over his warm skin. Many times on the Abysbankah, that rumble had pre-staged the dangerous and dreaded rapids. "'Hell, Ben rapids!' shouted Ray. Bad water, but no rocks. The rumble expanded to a roar, the roar to a boom, that charged the air with heaviness with a dreamy burr. The whole indistinct world appeared to be moving to the lash of wind, to the sound of rain, to the roar of the river. The boat shot down and sailed aloft, met shock on shock, breasted leaping dim white waves, and in a hollow unearthly blend of watery sounds, rode on and on, buffeted, tossed, pitched into a black chaos, and yet gleamed with the obscure shrouds of light. Then the convulsive stream shrieked out a last defiance changed its course abruptly to slow down and drown the sound of rapids in muffling distance. Once more the craft swept on smoothly to the drive of the wind and rush of the rain. By midnight the storm cleared, murky clouds split to show shiny blue-white stars, and a fitful moon that silvered the crests of the trusses and sometimes hid like a gleaming black-threaded pearl behind the dark branches. Jones, a plainsman, all his days wonderingly watched the moon-blanched water. He saw it shade and darken under shadowy walls of granite, where it swelled with hollow song and gurgle. He heard again the far-off rumble, faint on the night wind, high cliff banks appeared, walled out the mellow light, and the river suddenly narrowed, yawning holes whirlpools of a second, opened with a gurgling suck, and raced with the boat. On the craft flew, far ahead, A long, declining plain of jumping frosted waves played dark and white with the moonbeams. The slave plunged to his freedom, down his river, stone-spiked bed, knowing no patient eddy, and white-wreathed his dark, shiny rocks in spume and spray. End of chapter 8 Chapter 9 of The Last of the Plainsmen* by Zane Gray This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti, mikevendetti.com. The Last of the Plainsmen by Zane Grey, Chapter Nine, The Land of the Muskogs. A far cry it was from bright June at Port Chippewyan to dim October on Great Slave Lake. Two long laborious months. Ray and Jones threaded the crooked shores of the Great Inland Sea, to halt at the extreme northern end where a plunging outlet formed the source of a river here they found a stone chimney and fireplace standing among the darkened decayed ruins of a cabin we mustn't lose no time said Raya. i feel the winter and the wind and see how dark the days are getting on us i'm for hunting musk oxen replied jones man we're facin' the northern night we're in the land of the midnight sun soon we'll be shut in for seven months a cabin we want wood and meat A forest of stunted spruce trees edged on the lake, and soon its dreary solitudes rang to the strokes of axes. The trees were small and uniform in size. Black stumps protruded here and there from the ground, showing work of the steel in time gone by. Jones observed that the living trees were no larger in diameter than the stumps and questioned Rea in regard to the difference in age. "'Cut twenty-five, maybe fifty years ago,' said the trapper. "'But the living trees are no bigger.' Trees and things don't grow fast in Northland. They erected a fifteen foot cabin around stone chimney, roofed it with poles and branches of spruce and a layer of sand. In digging near the fireplace, Jones unearthed the rusty file and the head of a whiskey keg, upon which was a sunken word in unintelligible letters. We've found the place, said Rhea. Franklin built a camp in here in eighteen nineteen, and in eighteen thirty three Captain Back wintered here when he was in search of captain ross of the vessel fury it was those exploring parties that cut the trees i seen indian sign out there made last winter i reckon but indian never cut down no trees the hunters completed the cabin piled cords of firewood outside stowed away the kegs of dried fish and fruits the sacks of flour boxes of crackers canned meats and vegetables sugar salt coffee tobacco all the cargo then took the boat apart and carried it up the bank, which labor took them less than a week. Jones found sleeping in the cabin, despite the fire uncomfortably cold, because of the white chinks between the logs. It was hardly better than sleeping under the swaying spruces. When he essayed to stop up the cracks, a task by no means easy considering the lack of material, Ray laughed his short ho, ho," and stopped him with the word wait. Every morning the green ice extended further out into the lake. The sun paled dim and dimmer, the nights grew colder on october eighth the thermometer registered several degrees below zero it fell a little more the next night and continued to fall oh ho cried ray she struck the toboggan and presently she'll commence to slide come on buff we've work to do he caught up a bucket made for their hole in the ice he broke a six-inch layer the freeze of a few hours and filling his bucket returned to the cabin Jones had no inkling of the trapper's intention, and wonderingly he soused his bucket full of water and followed. By the time he had reached the cabin a matter of some thirty or forty good paces, the water no longer splashed from his bale, for a thin film of ice prevented. Rhea stood fifteen feet from the cabin, his back to the wind and through the water. Some of it froze in the air, most of it froze on the logs. The simple plan of the trapper to encase the cabin with ice was easily divined all day the men worked ceasing only when the cabin resembled a glistening mound it had not a sharp corner nor crevice inside it was warm and snug and as light as when the chinks were open a slight moderation of the weather brought the snow such snow a blinding white flutter of great flakes as large as feathers all day they rustled softly all night they swirled sweeping sweeping seeping brushing against the cabin. Ho, ho! roared Ray. Tis good. Let her snow and the reindeer will migrate. We'll have fresh meat. The sun shone again, but not brightly. A nipping wind cut down out of the frigid north and crusted the snow. The third night following the storm, when the hunters lay snug under their blankets, a commotion outside aroused them. Indians, said Ray, come north for reindeer. Half the night shouting and yelling barking of dogs hauling of sleds and cracking of dried skin tepees murdered sleep for those in the cabin in the morning the level plain and edge of the forest held the indian village caribou hides strung on forked poles constituted tent-like habitations and no distinguishable doors fire smoked in holes in the snow not till late in the day did any life manifest itself round the trepees and then a group of children, poorly clad in ragged pieces of blankets, skins, gaped at Jones. He saw their pinched brown faces, staring hungry eyes, naked legs and throats, and noted particularly their dwarfish size. When he spoke, they fled precipitously, a little way, then turned. He called again, and all ran except one small lad. Jones went into the cabin and came out with a handful of sugar in square lumps. Yellow knife, Indians,' said Ray." "'A starved tribe. We're in for it.' Jones made motions to the lad, but he remained still, as if transfixed, and his black eyes stared wonderingly. "'Mulor Nassou.' "'White man, good,' said Ray. The lad came out of his trance and looked back at his companions, who edged nearer. Jones ate a lump of sugar, then handed one to the little Indian. He took it gingerly, put it in his mouth, and immediately jumped up and down. "'Hopishimpepoli! Hopi he shouted to his brothers and sisters they came on the run think he means sweet salt interpreted ray of course these beggars never tasted sugar a band of youngsters trooped around jones and after tasting the white lumps shrieked in such delight that the braves and squaws shuffled out of the tree peas in all his days jones had never seen such miserable indians dirty blankets hid all their person except straggling black hair hungry wolfish eyes and moccasins feet They crowded into the path before the cabin door and mumbled and stared and waited. No dignity, no brightness, no suggestion of friendliness marked this peculiar attitude. Starved, exclaimed Ray. They've come to the lake to invoke the great spirit to send the reindeer. Buff, whatever you do, don't feed them. If you do, we'll have them on our hands all winter. It's cruel, but, man, we're in the north. Notwithstanding the practical trapper's admonitions, Jones could not resist the pleading of the children. He could not stand by and see them starve. After ascertaining there was absolutely nothing to eat in the tepees, he invited the little ones into the cabin and made a great pot of soup, into which he dropped compressed biscuits. The savage children were like wildcats. Jones had to call Rea to assist him in keeping the famished little aborigines from tearing each other to pieces when finally they were all fed they had to be driven out of the cabin that's new to me said jones poor little beggars ray doubtfully shook his shaggy head next day jones traded with the yellow knives he had a good supply of baubles, besides blankets gloves and boxes of canned goods which he had brought for such trading he secured a dozen of the large-boned white and black indian dogs huskies ray called them two long sleds with harnesses and several pairs of snow-shoes. This trade made Jones rub his hands in satisfaction, for during all the long journey north he had failed to barter for such cardinal necessities to the success of his venture. "'But have doled out the grub to them in rations,' grumbled Ray. Twenty-four hours sufficed to show Jones the wisdom of the trapper's words, for in just that time the crazed ignorant savages had gutted the generous store of food which should have lasted them for weeks.' The next day they were begging at the cabin door ray cursed and threatened them with his fist but they returned again and again days passed all the time in light and dark the indians filled the air with dismal chant and doleful incarnations to the great spirit and a tum 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 of the tom toms a specific feature of their wild prayer for food but the white monotony of the rolling land and the level lake remained unbroken the reindeer did not come The days became shorter, dimmer, darker. The mercury kept on the slide. Forty degrees below zero did not trouble the Indians. They stamped till they dropped, then sang till their voices vanished and beat the tom-toms everlastingly. Jones fed the children once each day against the trapper's advice. One day, while Raya was absent, a dozen braves succeeded in forcing an entrance and clamored so fiercely and threatened so desperately— that Jones was on the point of giving them food when the door opened to admit Rhea. With a glance he saw the situation. He dropped the bucket he carried threw the door wide open and commenced action. Because of his great bulk, he seemed slow, but every blow of his hammer fist knocked a brave against the wall, or through the door into the snow. When he could reach two savages at once, by way of diversion, he swung their heads together with a crack. They dropped like sacks of corn, pitching them out into the snow. In two minutes the cabin was clear he banged the door and slipped the bar in place buff i'm going to get mad at these thieving redskins some day he said gruffly the expanse of his chest heaved slightly like the slow swell of a calm ocean but there was no other indication of unusual exertion jones laughed and again gave thanks for the comradeship of this strange man shortly afterward he went out for wood and as usual scanned the expanse of the lake the sun shone mistier and whinier, and frost feathers floated in the air. Sky and sun and plain and lake all were gray. Jones fancied he saw a distant moving mass of darker shade than the gray background. He called the trapper. Caribou, said Ray instantly. The vanguard of the migration. Hear the Indians? Hear their cry. Atone, atone. They mean reindeer. The idiots have scared the herd with their infernal racket and no meat will they get. The caribou will keep to the ice, and man or Indian can't stalk them there. For a few moments his companion surveyed the lake and shore with a plainsman's eye, then dashed within to reappear with a winchester in each hand. Through the crowd of bewailing, bemoaning Indians, he sped to the low, dying bank. The hard crust of snow upheld him. The gray cloud was a thousand yards out upon the lake, and moving southeast. If the caribou did not swerve from this course they would pass close to a projecting point of land a half-mile up the lake. So, keeping a wary eye upon them, the hunter ran swiftly. He had not hunted antelope and buffalo on the plains all his life without learning how to approach moving game. As long as the caribou were in action, they could not tell whether he moved or was motionless. In order to tell if an object was inanimate or not, they must stop to see, of which fact the keen hunter took advantage. Suddenly he saw the gray mass slow down and bunch up he stopped running, to stand like a stump. When the reindeer moved again, he moved, and when they slackened again, he stopped and became motionless. As they kept to their course, he worked gradually closer and closer. Soon he distinguished gray, bobbing heads. When the leader showed signs of halting in his slow trot, the hunter again became a statue. He saw they were easy to deceive, and daringly confident of success. He encroached on the ice and closed up the gap till not more than two hundred yards separated him from the gray, bobbing, antlered mass. Jones dropped to one knee. A moment only his eyes lingered admiringly on the wild and beautiful of spectacle. Then he swept one of the rifles to a level. Old habit made the little beaded sight cover first the stately leader. Bang! The gray monarch leaped. Straight forward, four hoofs up, antlered head back, to fall dead with a the crash. Then for a few moments the Winchester spat a deadly stream of fire and when emptied was thrown down for the other gun, which, in the steady, sure hands of the hunter, belched death to the caribou. The herd rushed on, leaving the white surface of the lake gray with a struggling, kicking, bellowing heap. When Jones reached the caribou, he saw several young ones trying to rise on crippled legs. With his knife he killed these, not without some hazard to himself. Most of the fallen ones were already dead, and the others soon lay still. Beautiful gray creatures, they were almost white with wide-reaching symmetrical horns a medley of yells arose from the shore and ray appeared running with two sleds with the whole tribe of yellow knives pouring out of the forest behind him buff you're just what old jim said you was thundered ray as he surveyed the gray pile here's winter meat and i'd have not given a biscuit for all the meat i thought you'd get thirty shots in less than thirty seconds said jones and i'll bet every ball i sent touched here how many reindeer twenty twenty buff or i'll forget how to count i guess maybe you can't handle them shootin arms oh here comes the howlin redskins ray whipped out his bowie knife and began disemboweling the reindeer he had not proceeded far in his task when the crazed savages were around him everyone carried a basket or receptacle which he swung aloft and they sang prayed rejoiced on their knees jones turned away from the sickening scenes that convinced him these savages were a little better than cannibals ray cursed them and tumbled them over and threatened them with the big bowie an altercation ensued heated on his side frenzied on theirs thinking some treachery might befall his comrades jones ran into the thick of the group share with him ray share with him whereupon the giant hauled out ten smoking carcasses Bursting into a babble of savage glee and tumbling over one another, the Indians pulled the caribou to the shore. Thievin fools!' growled Ray, wiping the sweat from his brow. "'Said they'd prevailed on the great spirit to send the reindeer. Why, they'd never smelled warm meat but for you. Now, Buff, they'll gorge every hair, hide and hoof, of their share in less than a week. That's the last we'd do for the damned cannibals.' Didn't you see em eating of the raw innards, yeah, I'm calculating we'll see no more reindeer. It's late in the migration. The big herd is driven southward, but well, we're lucky, thanks to your prairie training. Come on now with the sleds, or we'll have a pack of wolves to fight by loading three reindeer on each sled. The hunters were not long in transporting them to the cabin. Buff, there ain't much doubt about them keeping nice and cool, said Ray. They'll freeze and we can skin when we want. That night the starved wolf-dogs gorged themselves till they could not rise from the snow. Likewise the yellow knives feasted. How long the ten reindeer might have served the wasteful tribe Ray and Jones never found out. Next day two Indians arrived with dog-trains, and their advent was hailed with another feast and a powwow that lasted into the night. "'Guess we're going to get rid of our blasted hungry neighbors,' said Ray, coming in next morning with the water-pail. "'And I'll be darned, Buff.' if I don't believe them crazy heathen have been told about you. Them Indians was messengers. Grab your gun and we'll walk over and see. The Illinines were breaking camp, and the hunters were at once conscious of the difference in their bearing. Ray addressed several braves, but got no reply. He laid his broad hand on the old wrinkled chief, who repulsed him and turned his back. With a growl, the traffer spun the Indian around and spoke as many words of the language as he knew. He got a cold response, which ended in the ragged old chief starting up, stretching a long dark arm northward, and his eyes fixed in fanatical subjection and shout, "Naza, naza, naza." Heathen! Ray shook his gun in the faces of the messengers. It'll go bad with you to come naziin any longer on our trail. Come, buff, clear out before I get mad. When they were once more in the cabin, Ray told Jones that the messengers had been sent to warn the Yellow Knives not to aid the white hunters in any way that night the dogs were kept inside and the men took turns in watching morning showed a broad trail southward and with the going of the yellow knives the mercury dropped to fifty and the long twilight winter night fell so with this agreeable riddance and plenty of meat and fuel to cheer them the hunters sat down in their snug cabin to wait many months for daylight those few intervals when the wind did not blow were the only times ray and jones got out of doors to the plainsman new to the north the dim gray world about him was of exceeding interest out of the twilight shone a wan, round lusterless ring that ray said was the sun silence and desolation were heart-numbing where are the wolves asked jones of ray wolves can't live on snow they're further south after caribou or further north after musk-ox in those few still intervals jones remained out as long as he dared with the mercury sinking to sixty degrees he turned from the wonder of the unreal remote sun to the marvel of the north aurora borealis ever present ever changing ever beautiful and he gazed in rapt attention polar lights said ray as if he were speaking of biscuits you'll freeze it's getting cold cold it became to the matter of seventy degrees frost covered the walls of the cabin and the roof except for over the fire the reindeer were harder than iron a knife or an axe a steel trap burned as if it had been heated in fire and stuck to the hand the hunters experienced trouble in breathing the air hurt their lungs the months dragged ray grew more silent day by day and as he sat before the fire his wide shoulders sagged lower and lower Jones, unaccustomed to the waiting, the restraint, the barrier of the North, worked on guns, sleds, harnesses, till he felt he would go mad. Then, to save his mind, he constructed a windmill of caribou hides and pondered over it. Trying to invent, to put into practical use, an idea he had once conceived, hour after hour he laid under his blankets, unable to sleep, and listened to the North Wind. Sometimes Ray mumbled in his slumbers. Once his giant form started up, and he muttered a woman's name. Shadows from the fire flickered on the walls, visionary. Spectral shadows, cold and gray, fitting the north. At such times he longed with all the power of his soul to be among those scenes far southward, which he called home. For days Ray never spoke a word, only gazed into the fire, ate, and slept. Jones, drifting far from his real self, feared the strange mood of the trapper and sought to break it but without a veil. More and more he reproached himself, and singularly, on the one fact that, as he did not smoke himself, he had brought only a small store of tobacco. Ray, inordinate and inveterate smoker, had puffed away all the weed in clouds of white, then had relapsed into gloom. End of chapter 9